This is an ABC podcast. International backpackers are flocking back to Australia, bringing relief to farmers desperate for workers. I come back here because I have good friends and I like the job. I want to spend all my year here. And farmers in Tasmania join forces to protect one of the island's rarest creatures, the giant freshwater crayfish. Well, I like, grew up beside the river, you know, hunting and fishing, and you, know, you see lobsters running around and everything, and you know, we used to find lobsters out in the middle of the paddock. I'm Sinead Mangan, and this is Australia Wide, coming to you from Wadjuk Country. Australia's severe workforce shortage doesn't seem to be going away anytime soon. But there's an organisation in New South Wales that may have come up with a possible solution. An aged care home in Bega on the New South Wales far south coast has developed something called a labour agreement with the government to bring on an additional 25 migrant workers every year. And the business says it could be a model for other employers across the country to adopt as well. This story by Kira Priced. Finding workers over the past few years has been a challenge for Sapphire Coast Community Aged Care CEO Matt Seerp. The last couple of years have been challenging, particularly with COVID. With COVID has brought all the other issues, which is staffing. Staffing has been our biggest issue, but also communication with our staff, our residents and our families. This aged care organisation is based on the New South Wales far south coast in Bega. It's one of many industries struggling with severe workforce shortages in Australia, forcing it to think outside of the box to find some solutions. One that is proving to be successful is this labour agreement, which the business developed with the federal government. The labour market agreement was an option that we chose to go down that path to attract staff to our organisation as migrant workers. Most of the people to date have been in Australia on student visas, so they've been here for a couple of years and they've been upskilling themselves, which has been fantastic. So we have brought in about 16 staff to date under this labour market agreement. Yes, there's a few hurdles and bridges to overcome. We had to employ specialists, lawyers, immigration lawyers. We had to employ specialists, recruitment consultants to assist us. However, it's all worth it. So 16 migrants have started working for the business in the past six months under this agreement and they expect to fill 20 spots by the end of the year. The opportunity has been welcomed by Hannah Badari and Anup Tiwari, who migrated from Nepal several years ago. It's really a big move for me because I was not expecting the Bega would be this good. I I had never heard about Bega in my life when I was in Sydney or Adelaide. I used to, I Google it when, when my agent told me that you're going to Bega. I say, is there a place named Bega? Oh, there is. It was, it's really nice. It's a valley. It's very nice. I like yes, it. Yes, he was thinking like it's really a small village kind of thing where we can't get anything. <laughs> Nothing, no facilities. He was thinking like that. And I showed, look, we got uni as well, uh, childcare and other hospitals as well. And then she believes. <laughs> yes, so bigger than expected. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> And so um, you have this opportunity for four years and then what are your plans after that? Apply for permanent visa? Yeah, definitely. The contract is 
for four years, but our agent said that after two years we can apply our permanent residency. And is the plan at the moment to stay in the Vega Valley? Oh, I or so? like this Vega place, so I always telling her that let's buy a house after you know getting a residency and other thing, and let's have our family grown up here. One of the biggest barriers for businesses looking for staff is Australia's regional housing crisis. Sapphire Coast Community Aged Care decided to work with real estate agents to take on rentals for their workers. Chief Operations Officer Julie Evans says the community has also pitched in to help. That's my other job. Somehow I've um, managed to start looking after some rentals. We've currently got 15 rentals on our books and the purpose was to be able to um, uh, take out some rentals in the name of our organisation and then be able to support our new workers when they arrive. Um, to be able to turn up and to have some basic furnishings in a house um, which we've been really well supported by the three local area rotary clubs who've done an amazing job in getting donations and getting furniture for us and also supported by local businesses who've put together welcome packs, food packs, toiletries packs, those sorts of things. The Department of Home Affairs says the Labor agreements are an option for businesses when standard visa programs are unavailable or if the need can't be met in the Australian labour market. The department says any business that has been operating for more than 12 months in Australia can apply for an agreement. Kira Price with that story from Bega in New South Wales. You're listening to Australia Wide on ABC Radio. We head to far north Queensland now to Australia's oldest coffee plantation, Skybury Farms. The farm not only grows coffee, but it also grows red papaya as their complementary crops. But they're both labour intensive. So the lack of backpackers in the last three years during COVID made farming very difficult. But there is light at the end of the tunnel as more backpackers return to Australia. Figures show there were three times as many working holiday visas granted this financial year compared to last. And as Tanya Murphy discovered, the overseas workers are more than welcome in regional Queensland. In the sweltering Mariba heat, Fernando Hernandez bends over furrows of dirt and pushes papaya plants into the ground. It may not be the easiest job, but the former Chilean construction worker enjoys it so much that he's returned to Skybury Farms after working there for one and a half years before COVID. He's one of a number of international working holiday visa holders who are returning to Australia after being locked out during the global pandemic. I go home for visiting my family, but they start the COVID so I can't come back. And now I apply to the visa again and I got it. I come back here because I have good friends and I like the job. I want to spend all my year here. For the first time since the pandemic began, Skybury Farms have a full roster of more than 120 staff, including 70 pickers and packers. The farm also employs locals and Pacific Island workers, but General Manager Candy McLaughlin says returning working holidaymakers have completed the picture. We are finding that staff who were with us two and a half years ago from Spain or Portugal and other places are returning and generally getting inquiries about employment on a weekly basis now. So from where we were 12 months ago when COVID was still very much a big part, I think that pressure is behind us. However, let's see what happens when the avocados kick in. Are you out of the woods as far as workers go or are you still kind of need a, a bit more? I would comfortably say we are out of the woods, which is fabulous. Yay! (laughs) 
I know that's not the case for every farm that I've talked to, so that's really good to hear. Yeah, there might be still some challenges. I think Mariba still suffers from a lack of accommodation, and we know that there's a shortage there in that rental space. Ken's job agent, Erin Wells, recruits for around 300 rural and remote employers across Australia and says an influx of job-seeking backpackers has just arrived in the country. It's definitely picked up in the last three weeks. We've placed 28 staff in the last two days. So we've just placed 20 staff from Sweden, Spain, Scotland, UK and Canada on a mango farm on the Savannah Highway. And then we've got another 20 going down and starting on the 20th on another mango farm. And we've placed another 12 people in outback mining towns to work over Christmas, New Year's in hospitality. Is this the most that you've had in a long time? Definitely the most we've seen in the last three years. So now companies are interviewing two or three people for the one position because now they have choices and they're landing and they're all within a one to two weeks starting work straight away. Although international borders reopened more than six months ago, Ms Wells says backpackers are now travelling north in larger numbers due to bad weather and increased costs of living in New South Wales and Victoria. Some were saying they were paying between 50 and 70 a night to stay in a capsule hostel in Sydney. And everyone knows that regional Queensland is a lot cheaper, so we've been getting an influx of them flying up from Sydney and Melbourne. Also, there's been a lot of people, a lot of Irish. There must be a really good flight at the moment from Ireland to Perth. There's a lot of people landing in Perth, a lot of my Irish, and I'm placing them straight from Perth, straight over to Queensland. Home affairs figures show just over 97,000 working holiday visas were granted in the 2021-22 to 22 financial year, compared with 39,500 the previous year. But they're still below pre-pandemic figures when more than 209,000 visas were granted during 2018-2019. to 2019. FNQ Growers Chairman Joe Morrow says with the peak season of mango and lychee harvest just around the corner, food producers aren't out of the woods yet. Those numbers are overall still low compared to where we were pre-COVID. So we still need to see significant increase in numbers, uh, especially with the season around the corner where we have the peak season coming in, which is the uh, seasonal crops like larches, mangoes and avos. At this stage, it doesn't look too bad. I mean, we've got a lot of locals coming back and that's where we've been mainly focused the last three years. But at the same time, uh, as we get into the later part of the season, once we get into February in particular, we'll be looking for more staff. Far North Queensland Growers Chairman and Mango Grower Joe Morrow finishing that story from Tanya Murphy. And you can read more of that story on Australia Wide's webpage. Later, we're going to head deep into the forest of northwest Tasmania to go and search for a rare specimen of crayfish that lives in its flowing rivers. It's the world's biggest freshwater cray and it's endangered. But this lo- local farmer didn't know that until a mysterious woman came knocking on his door. She was initially told, said that she was the lobster lady, <laughs> uh, affectionately. But, um, <laughs> Sounds like a superhero. A superhero, but yeah, no, look, once like we started talking and realised you know, it, it was going to benefit both parties. They called you the lobster lady. <laughs> yeah, I wasn't aware of that. Um. <laughs> we find out more about the work of the lobster lady in just a tick. With ABC Listen, explore a whole new world of podcasts and live radio. 
like unpicking fast fashion in Veronica Milsom's podcast, Threads. The marketing tricks being used on us right now. Or learning to spend less and live better with Nazim Hussain's Pineapple Project. Do we all really need it? And if we do, how do we get it for cheap? The ABC Listen app. A whole new world of live radio and on-demand audio entertainment. Download it now from your app store. And while you're there, you can listen to Australia Wide as well, whenever you want to. New laws are being considered by the WA government, which would enable First Nations people claim rights to their own traditional knowledge. The proposed legislative change would regulate the use of genetic material sourced from native animals and plants. But there are questions about how traditional owners would actually benefit from the changes. Tallulah Bindry reports. Pat Torres has been harvesting native produce in WA's Kimberley for as long as she can remember. So the collecting and harvesting of the gubbing and other plant foods, I've been doing that for at least 20 years as a sole trader. And then only in the last three years did I create a company so that I could grow the business into a commercial entity. The Jabba Jabba, Nyul Nyul and Yaru woman loves sharing her knowledge with others. She even teaches classes to other Aboriginal women about how to harvest and process native recipes. I also involve them in the Indigenous Women Social Enterprise Program, which is to do with raising the profile and encouraging more Indigenous women to get involved in the native foods industry. She's one of a growing number of traditional owners involved in the native food trade. And she has high hopes for the new laws flagged by the WA government, which would give First Nations people more agency over their traditional knowledge. New biodiscovery laws being drafted would seek to regulate the use of genetic material sourced from native plants and animals and empower traditional owner groups to access them. The Biodiscovery Act is all about ensuring that Indigenous people have a leading role in protecting the country and the lands because it is our original lands. We are the first people and it was our people who actually created the environments that we enjoy today. So the Biodiscovery Act is all about encouraging all Australians to work together to acknowledge which trees, which plants actually have a use for humans. The question of First Nations copyright and ownership last came to a head in 2015 in the Kimberley when a major US cosmetic company put a patent on the compounds found in the native fruit gubbinge, also known as the kakadu plum. Research from the University of Sydney recently found that Australia's rapidly growing native foods and botanicals industry was worth about $81 million in the 2019-20 to financial year. There are hopes that could double by 2025. Whenever you're talking about um, particularly commercialisation of traditional knowledge, you have to be very respectful of that, that knowledge and make sure that it's not only developed in a commercially sensitive way but a culturally sensitive way as well. So understanding uh, where that biodiversity exists, who owns the knowledge around uh, the development of that biodiversity and how do they, the people who own that knowledge, want to see it developed. That's Science Minister Roger Cook. He says the newly proposed laws have been inspired by the Nagoya Protocol, an international agreement which is focused on handing back power to Indigenous people when it comes to natural resources. 
and he hopes changing laws to meet international expectations will put traditional owners on equal footing to benefit from the growing industry. We need to actually form a balance between uh, making sure that we can regulate the exploitation of that knowledge, but also making sure that people can benefit from it. While Pat Torres is cautiously optimistic about the proposal, she insists the bill must be shaped by Indigenous voices. We've had almost 200 years of the land being treated in a wrong way, which means that there's been so much species lost. And so if the government and if industry and if companies in the future want to start utilising our plants or animals, I believe that the Indigenous ways of reacting or responding to living in a holistic environment needs to be taken into account. Aboriginal people need to have access to, to benefits that come out of us sharing our knowledge. In the past, we have a history in Australia of people just taking our knowledge and not giving us any benefit for the use of that knowledge. And that meant that we as you know, First Nations people are impoverished because in so many ways, our land's been stolen, our people have been stolen, and now our knowledge is the next frontier. Jabba Jabba, Nulla Nulla and Yaru woman Pat Torres ending that report from Kimberley reporter Tallulah Bindry. You're listening to Australia Wide. On ABC Radio. And you're with me, Sinead Mangan. Deep in a northwest forest in Tasmania, some farmers have joined forces to help protect one of the state's rarest creatures, the giant freshwater crayfish. Once it was normal for someone like fifth generation Rocky Cape farmer Malcolm to clear fertile land next to rivers and turn it into pasture, they had no idea of the severe impact that might have on one of the planet's most unique creatures. But thanks to a project started three years ago, farmers are taking action to save a species as well as improving their farms along the way. If you walk in a straight line that way, you would hit the Antarctic and you wouldn't hit a town. Literally, they're just... Ain't it? That, that, <laughs> this is Malcolm. He's showing me around his paddock, which is buried in thick, dense forest alongside a river in far northwest Tasmania. A tatty tiger still here? <laughs> He's a fifth-generation farmer. And in the 1980s, Malcolm, his father and his brother decided to clear a 60-acre flat on the banks of the Detention River. I left school when I was 15 and a half, and um, yeah, so I was 16, 17, 18, and yeah, that's just, uh, that was, my nightlife was down here, <laughs> <laughs> uh, pushing fire heaps together, and we blew the stumps with, you know, nitropyl and gelic nights, and yeah, and yeah. A 17, 18-year-old boy's dream, yeah, That's exactly right, yeah, blowing things up, yeah, and yeah, it's experimenting and yeah, blowing up full trees and seeing how high you could lift them off the ground and things like that. <laughs> Happy days, yeah. I'm sure you noticed the landscape changed over the time after after you cleared it. Can you explain to me a little bit about what happened? As we started clearing, we come across you know real swampy areas and um, the, the creek used to you know weave its way you know, across the, the, the 60 acre paddock you know, and then we got to a certain point and then we put a a main, what we call the main drain, excavator drain, straight through the middle in a nice straight line, and just to dry the rest of the bush ground out and the tea tree scrub and everything, so that we could actually clear it. You know, and it just stayed wet all the time. Yeah, it's, 
you virtually couldn't actually walk through it, a lot of it. Um, now, we'll fast forward in time about 40 years mm. and, and you got a phone call or a door knock yeah. from someone, yeah. a, a visitor. Yeah, yeah. Um, Fiona from Cradle Coast um, contacted us and said that you know, she had grants available to, to fence the river, you know, to, the, the, the protect the, the cattle you know, stand on lob, you know, in, in the habitat for the, the lobsters. You may not have caught it, but Malcolm is talking here about a rare and endangered creature that is found nowhere else in the entire world except for low-lying rivers across the north of Tasmania. It's called the giant freshwater crayfish, and its population has been dwindling for decades thanks to overfishing and habitat loss. And included in that grant was the... Um, off-stream watering, like with you know water pipes and, and concrete troughs, and uh, three-wire electric fence to fence off the river. And um, it, we had only had a single wire around the edge of the river, and every year we'd have to replace it. And and you know, there were issues with cows falling in rivers and things like that. Where now, like it's a more of a permanent boundary fence. What did you think when she first contacted you? Oh well, she she was she was initially told said that she was the lobster lady, <laughs> affectionately. But um, <laughs> sounds like a superhero. A superhero, but yeah, no. Look, once like we started talking and realised you know it, it was going to benefit both parties. Right at the very beginning, we looked at areas in the northwest that were good crayfish habitat we were also only working Fiona Marshall leader of the Cradle Coast Authority's giant freshwater crayfish project and we were trying to find sections of river that was mainly agricultural here we are beside the detention where we've got this magic remnant forest along the, the banks of the river and we've got really good patches of remnant vegetation in the crown lands so we've got a really good vegetation corridor um, ideal habitat for crayfish you know we've got flowing water we've got still water we've got lots of fallen timber etc so um, yeah we narrowed it down to six areas based on the landholder interest and and that was then when I had to speak to landholders that were adjoining and opposite banks like we were trying to get I guess a corridor not just a scattergun approach. They called you the lobster lady. (laughs) Yeah I wasn't aware of that. Um, (laughs) People weren't forced to do anything as um, Malcolm said it was really a negotiation process. What was your approach to Malcolm's property? Well, what happened is I brought out an air photo with me and Malcolm and I virtually walked from the top, the upstream end to the downstream end. We, I took photos, we looked at where there might have been damage to outside bends, etc. Um, and then we talked about the kind of works. Malcolm, it's been a while that these fences have been in now. What differences have you noticed? Um, well, I've noticed like the the, the rushes are, and you know the even small blackwoods have actually started to grow up behind the fences, you know, at where before like the cattle were cattle were just you know literally eat, been eaten them in the winter time, and yeah, it, you can actually see like to see coming back like and it's thickening up. Over time, I'd love to see some really big lobsters come back into this environment. I mean, there's no doubt we we're, we're not trapping or tagging very large ones so they really have had a lot of pressure put on them over the years but yeah hopefully there's hope for them there. Had you thought much about those before all of this? Um, 
Well, I like I grew up beside the river, you know, hunting and fishing, and you know you see lobsters running around and everything, and you know we used to find lobsters out the middle of the paddock, you know, when we were clearing and things like that. So we knew they were here, and you know, they've always and you know, they've always been here in lots of numbers, that and blackfish and everything. So and eels and all, you know, all the, the the river health. So I mean, but if you've got a healthy river, you know, you, you, everything else is sort of. The same, but I think um, I don't mean to swear here, but I think you've become a bit of a greenie. <laughs> yeah, yes. Oh, well, every farmer is a greenie, and I mean they've got they've got to be. You look after your animals, and you look after the ground, and you know they look after each other. We cleared a lot of ground, and I, I still cut down trees and cut firewood, and yeah, you know, I'm, you know, I'm the first one to you know burn a log and all the rest of it. But you've got to be a, a greenie. You know, to look after the ground the best, you know, otherwise, you know, you're, you're not a farmer if you're not looking after the ground. That's Malcolm, whose last name we've left out to protect the location of the craze. And you also heard giant freshwater crayfish recovery project coordinator Fiona Marshall, and she was chatting there to our reporter, Meg Pell. Can you imagine what eating's in them? The crayfish can get up to six kilos. That's an absolute whopper. And that's Australia-wide for this Thursday. I'm Sinead Mangan. I hope you're having a lovely evening. Cheerio. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.